We read this dedication prayer beginning in the 8th chapter of 1 Kings. We'll start in verse 12 and read all the way through 30. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all of the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it is in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the heavens, earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father what you promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you've spoken to your servant David my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? The old heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I've built. Yet I have regard, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God. Listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be opened night and day toward this house. That the place of which you've said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. Listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Listen in heaven, your dwelling place. When you hear, forgive. Years ago, there was a small town in the south where a man owned a gas station. He was tired of pumping gas and tired of doing all of that, so he decided that he'd turn it into a bar. Even without a building permit, he was set to it. And as soon as a church that was right near that place found out about it, they began to protest. 
They began to say, there's no way in this town, which is dry, you should be able to build a bar. Not only did they protest, they decided to call a week-long prayer vigil. Night and day, they would pray that God would stop the building of this tavern. So night and day, they prayed, many of them. Some of them came for days on end and nights on end without sleep. And amazingly, on the last night of the prayer vigil, there was a huge storm that erupted over that little town. And out of the storm clouds came a bolt of lightning and it hit that tavern and burned it to the ground. And as soon as it happened, the man who was building the bar filed suit against the church for arson. The church countersued, suing him for defamation and for false accusation. And when the judge rendered his verdict, he started by saying, no matter what I rule in this case, one thing is clear. The tavern owner believes in the power of prayer and those Christians don't. (laughs) 3,000 years ago, a king lay on his deathbed. For 33 years, he's ruled this nation, Israel, and he's ruled from Jerusalem. Last week, we talked about how he captured that city and how he put to death, as it were, the idols that were blind and lame. And now it's 33 years later, and he knows his time short. He also knows that when he dies, the chances of a civil war are great unless he chooses a successor. And so days before he died, he called in the high priest, Zadok, and he called in the prophet Nathan, and he said, I want you to go, and I want you to go to that place which is that dark place where the well is that feeds this city, and there I want you to anoint my son Solomon as king over Israel. Now think of this. For David to have the priest and the prophet anoint Solomon meant that he would pass over eight living sons. Every one of those sons, from a human perspective, had every right to sit on that throne before Solomon. Not only that, Solomon was the second born son of Bathsheba. I mean, talk about the difference between God and us. And according to the Bible, the prophet and priest do what the king says and they anoint Solomon near the well that is inside the wall of the city. The Bible says immediately after he's anointed, he does something very odd. He leaves the city and he heads north to a place called Gibeon and there he has a dream. First of all, he sacrifices for his sin there and then that night he has a dream. And the Lord comes to him and says, ask whatever you wish for me and I will give it to you. And there in Gibeon he says, Lord, give me wisdom. You know, 180 years ago in Great Britain, There's a woman who was 18 years old. And on one given day, the Lord of Melbourne came to her and said, I have bad news for you. Your father's just died. And that means you're queen. And instantly saw terror in her eyes. 
She was 18. She'd never been schooled in regal etiquette. And so seeing the terror in her eyes, he said, Can I read you a passage of Scripture, Your Highness? She said, Yes. He opened the Bible and began to read about Solomon's prayer at Gibeon. And when the Bible said he asked for wisdom and the Lord was pleased and gave it to him, Queen Victoria said, Would you pray with me that I receive the same gift? They got on their knees together and they prayed that she would be endowed with divine wisdom. She ruled Great Britain for 63 years and according to many, it was the greatest monarchy in the history of that country. Now, a lot's been made of that prayer at Gibeon. Sometimes people preach it and say, you know, if you, God gave you one wish, what would it be? What would you ask Him for? If He says, I'll give you anything, what will it be? You know, you get those kinds of sermons, but you're not going to get that here. <laughs> because there's a much greater prayer that Solomon prays, and that occurs 14 years later. His father's been dead for 14 years. Over 50 years before this point, David has said, I want to build a house in which God can dwell. Why does he say that? Because he's got a palace and God's living in a tent. He said, it's not right that the God of Israel live in a tent. When I live in a palace, I should build a, a temple for him. And Nathan says, yeah, go ahead and do it. And then comes back later and says, no, no, don't do it. God says, no. God said, your son will build it. And here, 45 years later, 14 years after David dies, Solomon has built this temple. And here, standing before all of Israel... He is ready to dedicate himself and Israel and this temple. And what he prays is a prayer of wisdom. You know, Tim was talking about earlier last week's sermon about the Jebusites. and He went back and did some research and said, you know, you're right. And I like that because most times they could say, you know, you're wrong on this. <laughs> and I mentioned that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And nowhere is that clearer than in this prayer. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the position Solomon takes. Look at verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. In other words, he prayed like this. And everybody in Israel was familiar with that prayer stance because that's what the priests would do. Now, according to ancient historians... When Solomon decided that he would build this temple because he knew the Lord had given permission, it took him seven years. And the amazing thing, the first thing he did was he sent out an edict and he gathered together 150,000 men and he said, I want you to go to Lebanon and I want you to cut cedars and then I want you to float them down the coastline of the Mediterranean to Joppa and then I want you to carry them 100 miles into the city. I mean, that's major. 
150,000 men going 500 miles north, cutting cedar trees, taking them to the Mediterranean, and then floating them down to the city of Joppa, which was a coastal city, and then carrying them all the way to the city of Jerusalem. Not only in terms of wood, but in terms of gold and silver and artistry, this building was fabulous. And now Solomon stands before the altar, the bronze altar, in front of the whole assembly of Israel with his hands outstretched toward heaven. And he begins to pray. He's not a priest, he's a king. And this king lifts his hands toward heaven to pray to a greater king. You know, there's a passage in the New Testament that most Christians read over without focusing on it. And one of the reasons they do it, because most translations of one particular word, a verb there, is wrong. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, No one comes to the Father unless my Father drags him. No one comes to me unless the Father drags him. Now, often in translating that, they'll say draw. So you get this notion of the Holy Spirit wooing. Uh, it's, not, it's draw. It's not draw, it's drag. It's exactly the same word Paul uses when he's talking to Christians later, and he says, pray for those who rule over you. Pray for those who drag you into court. They're not drawing you into court, they're dragging you. If ever there were a case of God dragging a man to do the work that God had established, it's Solomon. And here, on the exact same spot where Abraham lifted up the knife to plunge it into his son, his only son Isaac, Solomon lifts up his hands to the king who stopped the hand of Abraham. And Solomon knows it. Second, notice not only the position, notice the preface to the prayer. Look at verse 23. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath, keeping your covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all of their heart. Now this is almost identical to the words that the people of Israel with Moses sang after they crossed through the Red Sea. You know what they sang? Who is like you, O God, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness and awesome in glory? Now that's how Solomon begins this prayer. And it's amazing to me that he does because if it were me, I probably would have talked about the temple or the people or me. But instead, he's only focused on the Lord. At a time when it would be natural to focus on the temple, at a time when it would be natural to focus on your own abilities, Solomon is too taken with the splendor of God to think about anything else. Think about this. After all those centuries of sin, 
after all those centuries of failure, after all those centuries of making idols and worshiping them, Solomon is able to gaze across thousands of years of Jewish history and he's able to see the unwavering faithfulness of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't start with confession. He starts with adoration. Years ago, a friend and I were in Upper uh, Michigan and we were playing golf and we got there early and we were on the first tee with the starter. And if you don't play golf, you need to know the starters are guys that start you, uh, say, okay, go ahead and tee, hit, hit away. And they're normally retired guys that only do it because uh, they can play golf free for some of the days of the week. And so we're talking to this guy, and, we, and I ask him, well, tell me about you. Uh, how long have you been here? And he said, I've been here a number of years, and, and let me tell you about the course. And he does. And then finally I said, well, have you been here all your life? And I'll never forget, he smiled and said, not yet. Now that's a lot like Solomon here. He could have focused on the splendor of the temple, but he is so incredibly thankful and joyful for what God has done that all he can see is the faithfulness of God. He could have focused on the failure of his father. He could have focused on the failure of the people. He could have focused on his own failures. Over the past 14 years, he's been king, but he's failed a number of times in major ways. But here, all of that pales when he thinks and he looks toward the heavens and he sees the glory of God. Third, notice his plea. Look at verses 27 and 8. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant, to, this play, to his plea, O Lord, my God. Listen to the cry and to the prayer of your servant's prayers who pray before you this day. And then in verse 54 he says, the writer does. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar where he had knelt with his hands outstretched toward heaven. You know what that means? Somewhere between his preface and his plea, he got on his knees. There's only five times in the Bible where anybody kneels in prayer. Jesus knelt in Gethsemane, and you know what he asked for? Mercy. Let this cup pass from me. When Peter was called to the bedside of Dorcas and she had just died, remember he knelt down and he asked for healing mercy. When Stephen is being stoned to death, he kneels down and what's he pray? Father, forgive them. He prays for the Lord's mercy on his attackers. And then finally, when Paul is ready to leave Ephesus, He's been with these people for three and a half years. He knows he'll never return. He gets on his knees and he prays that God would be merciful to them. It's exactly what Solomon is praying for. 
In three verses here, he uses three different words for sin. And the first one is pisa, which means a knowing, eye-opened betrayal of God. It means a deliberate rebellion against God. And that's the first sin word that he uses. You know, Solomon's praying here, he's not sugarcoating it. What he's saying is, when we willfully sin against you, O Lord, and you are angry with us, forgive us and let our enemies see it. You know what the word anger there in Hebrew literally means? It means to have your nostrils flared. In other words, what he's saying is, Lord, when we deliberately rebel against you, and you are bitterly angry at us. Forgive us. He's talking about what's happened in the past. And he's saying when it happens in the future, forgive us. He's talking about what's happened in his lifetime. What he's saying is, Lord, your people have rebelled against you. My father David did, and I have. And when you are angry, justifiably so, remember your covenant and have mercy on us. Now that's a wise request. You know why? Because what Solomon is saying is, we have a pattern of sin in the past that probably will repeat itself in the future. And that's why I'm asking for mercy. Isn't that exactly what Jesus prayed on the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Lord, we will stand with you. We will never desert you. Yes, you will. And I will give you mercy. Then fourth and finally, notice the promise. Look at verse 25. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, what you've promised to him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel if only your, sins pay or your, your sons pay close attention to their way and walk before me as you have walked before me. Now there are a lot of people that make a lot about this promise. Many point to the fact that within a two, one generation, arguably two, a son of David no longer sits on the throne of Israel. Why? Because they've sinned. They've not paid close attention to the way in which they walk. In other words, what David is saying, or what Solomon is saying is, Lord, you said that if the sons of David obey your word, they will never fail to have a descendant on the throne. And because they didn't obey, God chose not to honor His promise. I mean, even Solomon doesn't pay close attention to his way. By the time he dies, he's messed up. But you know what's amazing? Though God made that a conditional promise, He kept it anyway. 900 years later, six miles from Jerusalem, 
Another son of David will be born, and he will reign on the throne of David forever. Do you, do you think Solomon knew that he would be born 900 years later? Not on your life. Even Nehemiah, 500 years later, doesn't know. For all the world, it looks as though God has kept his promise. If you do not pay close attention to your way, I will forsake you. I will not allow your son, the son of David, to sit on the throne. And yet he does. Even in the midst of their rebellion, he keeps his promise. You know why? Because of Jesus, the son of David, he's the one that watches his way. He's the one that keeps every aspect of the covenant. He's the one that pays close attention to the way in which he walks. He is the one who is holy and sinless. He is the one who's completely obedient. He is our final sacrifice. And this table proves it. You know, I long for this morning because for five weeks we've been talking about the significance of Jerusalem and that's where God first announces His plan to save sinful people like you and me. But you know the culmination of it? 2,000 years ago, at the same spot in Jerusalem, God Himself paid the penalty for every one of our sins. Not only do we have a king of glory, we have King Jesus to follow. Of all prayers in the Bible, that's one of the most precious. It's a prayer of wisdom. It begins with a preface of looking to God's glory. It goes to a plea made on the knees. It ends focusing on God's promise. And now we know that promise is fulfilled. Jesus is all that we need.